This is Family Office Intel at Dentons, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actual ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the modern family office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of Family Office here at the firm. The following is a conversation with Sean Parkin. Sean's got over 20 years of experience in the financial services space, and he is the founder and principal consultant at Hall Road Investments. Uh, before he started Hall Road, Sean spent seven years at the Boston-based uh, asset manager, State Street Global Advisors. And uh, at State Street, he had numerous roles, including a head of uh, Australian head of ETFs, uh, and he was a vice president within the institutional client group, uh, working with insurance companies, endowments, and family offices. He's also had roles in the capital market space uh, with LoanSec and a couple other players, including J.P. Morgan in London. He also had a very interesting Mongolian detour uh, as as part of his professional experience that we'll be sure to talk about today as well. So, thanks you for coming on, Sean. My pleasure. Thanks, Edward. Uh, so let's let's kick off with uh, a little bit of background of how you got into the family office space itself. Sure. So basically, as it says in the bio, I, I was at State Street Global Advisors, and a part of the when I was the, on the exchange traded fund side, in particular on the institutional relationships, um, part of that remit was with family offices. So they actually used um, exchange traded funds, uh, mostly a US and European funds. Uh, for strategic asset allocation, tactical asset allocation, things like that, um, being able to implement their, you know, their 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 macro and um, tactical theories with with ease and using a lever like that. So I got uh, talking to some family offices through that, and that was about oh geez, 10, 11 years ago. Um, I was with State Street as it says for seven years, and then um, obviously when I when I started Hall Road, and we'll probably get to that, but it was a it was a pretty easy sort of decision to to maintain you know family offices as, a, as the uh, preferred client base to be honest excellent so you also write a, a weekly newsletter and you've been doing that for quite a while what what inspired you to get started with that newsletter well um, when I left state Street um, I think one of the one of the things I always loved doing was writing um, and one of the things that I I found in my writing was that um, having an audience is always better. So I used it as a, a connecting tool, really, to be honest, when, when I left the firm just to remain in contact with ex-clients, current clients and contacts. And my first job um, in finance was uh, sort of writing the overnight market reports for, for the stockbrokers that I worked for. And so that, that never really left me. And, and through my whole career, I really liked writing and, and, and finding sort of the more um, idiosyncratic components of the market and um, being able to share that with people. So I think the newsletter was just really, to be honest, was maybe 10 people were on it and that was really just connecting with the, the client base that I'd had before and, and it's sort of grown from there. So it's been it's been very, I mean, it's a pleasure to write and I'm just happy that people are um, finding it of value, to be honest. So the audience is now global, but you're mm. based uh, in Australia, correct? That's correct. I'm in uh, on the west coast of Australia in the world's most isolated capital city, uh, Perth. So it's where I grew up when I was a kid before I moved to, I left in 2000 and then uh, came back 17 and a half years later. And um, my wife's from Fremantle and we met in London. But yeah, so back in Perth now, which has been great. Fantastic. So you also talk about technology 
for mm. family offices and sort of the struggles uh, that both single family offices and multifamily offices face in this space. Why is it so hard for people to get this piece of the puzzle right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's when so when I mean, it's probably worth you know talking around sort of how Paul Road, the the business that I run, sort of came to be. And and to be honest, that was it was born from frustration from client from family offices that I spoke to. Right. So when when building a business and and trying to find out where you fit within you know the financial services ecosystem, uh, a big part of that, well, for me anyway, was finding where both the, the client pain points and, and the demand intersects with my interest and, and, and my, you know, um, the, the, the things that I find enjoyable to work with, right? So I spoke to a lot of families when I left um, State Street and it was really around sort of what the main pain points were. And to a single family, I think most of them said, well, really, if someone could help us with the reporting piece, um, because they found that, you know, going from, as you know, you know, most of them sit on Excel, you know, where they have the liquidity event, they have, uh, um, you know, they start investing and things like that. And because there's so many counterparties and so many idiosyncratic sort of data sets that come in, a lot of the time it, it, the, the fallback is into, onto an Excel and you, um, it's very hyper-customizable, it's inexpensive, people know how to use it relatively easily. Um, but they get to a point or they start to see a point where that uh, is no longer viable from a risk perspective, from an analytics perspective and things like that. So, but there's no real, in the experience that I've had anyway, there's no real counterparty that's willing to take that on in, in whole, in, you know, basically as a, as a whole service. Um, you know, family offices kind of sit within that gray area between retail and institution in terms of size. So, they are large in asset and, and asset owners, but probably not large enough a lot of the time for a custodial bank to take them on as a single client like they would with a pension fund or something like that. So you, you have this conundrum where you've got institutional-like investments and um, counterparties, but you don't have the ability or the scale or you know the willingness to spend that money that you would as an, as an institutional asset owner. So that's the conundrum. Um, pretty much across the board. So we look at sort of three main pain points, which tends to be aggregation, aggregation of data sets, aggregation of data across multiple counterparties, uh, the automation of that data, and then sort of the, the output or the, the analytics and, and uh, reporting piece. So, you know, as much as we say, you know, you met one family office, you met one family office, as, as you probably heard ad nauseum, but there is some homogeneity in family office space, which is there seems to be a, um, an issue, well, not an issue, a challenge with curating that infrastructure. There's no sort of silver bullet unless you do pay, you know, institutional type rates. But why do you think that silver bullet doesn't exist other than the other than the cost factor? Is there other factors to consider around customization and things that are idiosyncratic to families themselves? Yeah, I mean, it's they are they are hyper customized, very unique. Um, but I think if you look at the counterparties that might take on a similar style client, um, the, the, potentially the revenue isn't there, right? So if you look at the counterpart, you know, you look at the platforms and the technology that has grown in particular in Australia and, and things like that, which is focused on the advisor space, you know, that mass, you know, you, you've got relatively, um, uh, uniform sort of, uh, 
counterparty issues, things like you've got single stock, you've got exchange traded funds, so you lo- a lot of that is exchange traded or easy to track, or you've got you know relatively um, vanilla structures of managed funds or commingled trusts and things like that. You rarely have to go outside of those too, so they can scale it and they can make the revenue. Um, opportunity is in the scale because they all kind of look the same. There's not a lot of outside of the box. There's not a lot of non-custodial assets and things like that. Um, So for a lot of people that are spending money on technology, um, the family office space is either hard to reach, hard to access, or it's so customized and so non-custodial and therefore hard to get, you know, everything in place that it potentially isn't that attractive as a revenue piece. Um, so I think we see that and like I said, they sort of sit in that middle part where they're not quite that big institutional level, but they're certainly not retail. So it's, it's kind of a hard cohort to, to segment, if that makes sense. It's like the worst kind of Goldilocks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So when a family is going, starting out with that spreadsheet and and kind Mm -hmm. of putting a MacGyver approach to how they're, they're doing their reporting, how do they make that jump in, in to something that you think is, and you, you've seen with um, clients that you've worked with that is a little bit more robust? What are some of the best practices on the, the tech and infrastructure side of things? Well, I, I think I like to start with um, the priorities, if that may, you know, finding, you know, when, when I'm engaged by a family office in terms of sort of figuring out or helping them curate that infrastructure, a lot of the time we start with what's the priorities that, they're, that they've got as an office. And a lot of that is, well, we're looking for this particular reporting output. We want to get off Excel. We want to reduce some of the key person risk in terms of, you know, some one person might manage the, the, the single sheets or, the, you know, have access to it or know the, you know, how to do the pivot tables and things like that. Um, so a lot of the time we start with, well, let's, let's look to get off Excel. And, and that's, you know, for a lot of people that's, that's not um, – that attractive because you know a lot of people like you so you probably see you know i mean depending on who you talk to there are potentially hundreds of billions of dollars of family office money run off excel and the reason is is because it is very very customizable and it gets the outputs as long as you put the effort in and and you can manage it so my best practice generally is to try to get off excel into a cloud-based platform of some description um we have one in Australia and New Zealand called ShareSite, which for a lot of people is a, um, a retail stock and managed funds platform. But there is a significant amount of family offices that use it because it creates a sort of first step outside of Excel onto a cloud-based platform that you've got some automation, you know, the public market automation. Um, there's some straight-through processing that you don't have to manually put together. You can give permissions. You can give some basic reporting. You know, there's there's quite and it's very customizable, just like Excel. Um, so we have people that use it, and then potentially have a um, a more proprietary uh, performance analytics over the top of it. But it's really what we're trying to do is get onto that because the next iteration of that because they go well, you know, this is fine. But what we're looking for now is more around the analytics piece, and we're looking for um, better reporting and, and things like that. It's a really good step to go from there to a, a more sophisticated platform because all the data is in one place now, right? It's all, you know, you've got the back, you don't have that backfill issue. You've got a significant amount of transactions that have been inputted. Um, you can call it what you like. So from you, the, the new platform, the new counterparty might be able to match it in terms of the white, the nomenclature of your asset classes and things like that. So 
what we try to do is say, well, if you're not looking to do the big spend and the big project and things like that, please look at something that's going to get you out off Excel and onto something that's cloud-based. At least then you can make a decision that's um, up the sophistication level and, it, and the switching costs won't be as high, but then you can have something that's aggregated and you, you remove some of the, the data risk perspective. So that, that tends to be where we start. And then we have conversations around what, what other aspects that you need to be on. What about the non-financial aspects of mm. technology that families require, things to help them around with operations, organizing everything uh, around the family and, and what their actual goals are? Have you seen any good platforms or best practices around leveraging technology to help them just run the business of the family office? Yeah, it's. I mean, to be honest, I try to stick to the investment piece as much as possible, just that because it's, but like nothing happens in a, in a vacuum, right? So, um, you know, if you think about the investment piece, it, it is very heavily connected to the, the finance piece, right? And, and they, they, they go hand in hand. They might have different outputs from a reporting perspective, but the finance piece so the finance office or the CFO or, or even the, um, the counterparty that they use for that has to be in conjunction with the investment office infrastructure, so from the reporting side. Um, you know, the, the other part of what you're talking about, I guess, is, is that um, whole of office operational piece. And that's when you get into things that are probably outside of my value week, to be honest. But I, I have seen, you know, some very good um, communication tools, you know, because I think for me anyway, and the feedback from some clients is being, well, what the, one of the purposes of setting up the family office structure is to have everyone in one place, have everyone come to a central area and be able to see each other and things like that. Um, and having that as a central connectivity for communication and uh, a repository for data across all aspects of the family office. So I think, to be honest, one of the biggest parts is going to be things like document storage and and communication tools within that. Um, but then, because you've got the executives and you've got you know people that sit outside, but or outside of the tent technically, but are, are still very much a part of the operations of that office um, that need to be able to be communicable. And and I think over COVID and things like that, I think what we did see in particular around the family office side was being able to be external and but maintaining those communication lines. So I think if anything, um, what I've found is that having secure data storage and document storage across not just the investment piece but across the whole thing, but also very good communication tools um, have been invaluable, I think. Um, so I think, you know, if you look at the standard sort of communication tools out there, but uh, to be honest, as long as it works, it's, it's going to be a lot better than having nothing or it's going to be emails or trying to catch someone on the phone and things like that. So I think in my experience, that's probably been on the technology side where we've seen a, a big uplift in the last couple of years. Any differences or things to note in the multifamily office space on the tech side? Yeah, well, I mean, multifamily office, and I guess it's a, I mean, for me, it's kind of a, a naming convention that gets used a lot. Um, and I, I have my own definition if it's if it's helpful, which is, you know, there's there's a big difference, I think, between a multifamily office, in my experience, and a wealth manager, right? And so, I think if you're a well, a multifamily office for me, and this this is just my the way that I view it. People can have other opinions, but um, if you're managing the assets of more than one family, but the sole purpose of that 
multifamily office is to manage the assets, not to man, not to get new clients, not to produce product, not to get um, fees for service and things like that. It's just really around sort of aggregating um, more than one family um, for the sole purpose of, of keeping it within one space. Then that to me is a multifamily office. If you're going into that sort of revenue-based, you know, commissions and um, managing expense ratios and building product and, and looking to gather more and more clients, then to me that's more of a wealth management model. Um, even though you might have a restricted amount of or a very small cap of clients, it's still sort of more of on the wealth management side. So from the technology perspective, I guess it kind of is bifurcated between those two, right? So if you're a, you've got two or three families and kind of see that in the founder family office um, mentality, which is maybe someone has or a group of people have had an exit at the same time and, and they'd like to keep the assets together. Uh, they, they tend to use infrastructure that is um, a little bit more uh, around sort of the number of clients that they have, right? So you've had three or four families, you might have three or four people within each of those families. So you're getting a, a relatively large number. So I think being able to have scaled reporting or reporting that can go at multiple entity levels and really start to unpack that nesting component around who owns what is really, really important. Um, and the wealth manager model, I think, is the same thing, right? So you're seeing those platforms in particular in the, in the US and, we, and you know, Hall Road brings them into, the, into Australia as well, which is that very hyper-customizable um, WYSIWYG, so what you see is what you get, um, platform where they can make views that are very specific to each person. So I think single-family office is less of a use case for that sometimes if you're only looking for one or two reports. But if you've got 15, 20 people, um, you do need that flexibility on, on customization of reports. And I think most of the time it's just around trying to get, you know, good data, um, relevant data for people and being able to, I guess, delineate between each one of those entities or each one of those family members. So I think that that tends to be the, the difference between sort of the single family office, which might have a fewer amount of people and multifamily office or wealth manager where you potentially have significantly more. Let's zoom out of technology. Okay. You're monitoring a lot of different family office trends across different geographies and what people are doing there. What are you seeing that's compelling um, that's now that we're kind of coming out of the pandemic and, and other areas and, and trends in the family office space uh, from your vantage? Um, I think, well, we're seeing, I mean, and, and I can speak to sort of my client base in Australia in particular, which is um, we're seeing a lot more people start family offices, you know, build out a, um, or they're, they're starting to use the, the terminology a bit more. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I was first starting in this space, you, you kind of had to explain what a family office was each time. Um, and and I think the the technology cost, but also a lot of the other costs associated with running what is ostensibly a, a multi-asset class portfolio management business um, are coming down. Um, and, but we're also starting to see people see it from a career perspective as being attractive, right? So you're starting to see almost a, and, and again, this is from the investment side in particular, which is we're starting to see, um, you know, institutional grade or institutional-like um, investment people moving into the family office space where, um, previously, you know, it was seen less as a, a, a an attractive proposition from a career perspective. You know, there's it's not a corporate. You're you know you're not you're not got that big long term progression. You kind of you're embedded pretty quickly. Um, so we are starting to see it as a bit more attractive. Um, I think, I mean, compared to the corporate side, 
um, the the work from home is less obvious. Like I think we're starting to see a little bit more in terms of having people come into the office uh, because it is a very flat structure. There's only a few people, you know, it's, um, you know, you do st- like to see the, and the principals do like to see people, you know, it's, I don't think it's as much of an, uh, a work from home kind of environment. And, you know, I'm not sure if this is sort of what you're looking for, but I mean, we're starting to see a little bit more on the, on the investment side, in particular on the, the private market alternative side, but also, you know, there is a, an element of what that next generation is going to look for in terms of uh, from the investment also with the operations and that can, you know, through the lens of impact and environmental, social and governance factors and philanthropy. So it's that's a bit of a mishmash of trends, I guess, but I, I think what we're starting to see is that, you know, the family office space is becoming better known as a, as a terminology and it's more attractive and it's more attractive not only for people that are, looking to work in that space but also more attractive for people that are looking to set up these structures for specific reasons you know um to for all the things that people set up a, a family office for it's becoming a little bit more um a little bit more prevalent i think yeah sometimes i instead of calling it trends which is a a popular f- phrase I, I like to call it themes because some of these are going to be ever present right they're they're going to be uh, perennial issues and and things that families need to to think about there, but I think you mentioned a couple of the the, the most prominent ones that are there. But you also mentioned this this point of starting a family office. In your experience, where, where what's that breaking point of when a family should consider starting their own family office? Well, I mean, there's there's kind of, I mean, you can kind of take it two ways, right? You can take it from a, an asset size perspective, which I think a lot of people do, um, which is to say, or you know, and, and you've probably heard the numbers, which is you know over two hundred and fifty million dollars or something like that. That's where you go. Well, this is going to be there is there is a case for the costs of running it and being able to get access as a as a corporate structure is, is going to be um, beneficial to open, you know start a family office. Um, but again, it's, it's, it really is sometimes it's like, I don't think people should, I think that, you know, there's, if you're looking to, if you can, um, offload a lot of the, and this is more on the investment side, again, if you can offload that to one counterparty and have them look after it, and then you can look after the things, or you can enjoy the things that, you know, wealth brings and, and your interests lie, then I don't know if it's, if it's worth, um, starting a family office, there has to be a reason. And the reasons tend to be. Um, very idiosyncratic, right? So some people, like I said, they they start a family office with a smaller asset size because they want complete agency over the way it's run. They want to run it as a corporate structure, not as an individual. They want to include the family in it. Um, it might be that they have a significant amount of assets and they want to internalize some of the operational and investment piece and um, they, they have an, a diversified um, asset class or you know investments that need running under a corporate banner. Um, sometimes it's it's to try and retain staff. Um, sometimes you see people going, well, I don't want to work for an individual, but I will work within a corporate structure because of the protections and the normal corporate sort of components that go with it. Um, so I think that tends to be where if someone wants those things, like if they want someone to work for them and only them and have complete control and and it's just their investments and things like that then i think that's a very good case for it regardless of asset size i mean obviously you know within reason 
Um, but there's also a, a good case for, for not having a family office because it's, you know, there's, there, you have to run it, you have to staff it, you have to have the legal and the corporate and the tax and all those sorts of things in place. And that can be expensive. It, it has to be, um, there has to be a reason for it. So I think it's, there's no real one answer. Um, most people I talk to that have started a family office, some, or some of them have said, well, we were just told to. Like a, that was just the way that you got over a certain asset size. You need to you set up a family office. And some were very specifically looking to open a family office because they had very specific reasons to, um, th- all those ones that I sort of mentioned. But, yeah, it is, it is very um, individually driven, and I don't think anyone's got the exact right answer. And I think that's why we sort of lean on asset size as sort of a determinant. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, it really is up to the, uh, the individual family or the individual themselves. So Mongolia, you, ha- you yeah. mentioned the <laughs> Mongolian detour. Tell us a little mm. bit about it. Oh, I, um, I'm in Western Australia, so I grew up in Perth and, and Western Australia is a big mining resources uh, town and state. And so... On my gap year after high school, I did. Uh, I worked on a mine site up in the middle of Western Australia in a place called Mekithara on a in a laboratory. Which is it sounds technical, but really it's a big shed in the middle of the desert, and you sort of figure out how much gold is within each, um, you know, within drill uh, within within the drilling sort of grade control and exploration. So I did that for a year, and then when I was I was a stockbroker in Sydney, and I was intending to go to London. Uh, this is quite a significant amount of time afterwards, but I wanted to go to London. And I think the Aussie dollar at the time was about 37 pence. And so my father was um, involved in mining still and uh, a company called, he was um, involved in a company called um, SGS or Scientific Services. And they needed uh, someone to help out on a, what they call a chemist style cover um, in um, in Mongolia, and I and he said we don't want to do that because you can get some money before you go to London. And I said that sounds fantastic, I'll do that. So went via Beijing and ended up in Ulaanbaatar and ended up in the South Gobi Desert in a place called Turquoise Hill, which is um, Oyotogoi, which I think is Rio Tinto now. And I was there for six months in the dead of winter in Mongolia. So spent half the time in Oyotogoi and half the time in Ulaanbaatar. Uh, and they're you know hanging out at the British consulate and generally trying to stay out of trouble. Yeah, it was it was fantastic. It was freezing cold. It was like minus thirty five degrees Celsius. So it was um, probably the and I'd never seen snow before in my life. So before I went to London, so that that was my first experience with with snow as well. So yeah, it was it was a fantastic experience. Mongolian people were amazing. I drank fermented horses milk and a significant amount of vodka and uh, lived in a gur or what you'd call a yurt for a while as well. Minus your Mongolian lessons that you've learned. Uh, if you had to think back at your career, both either the professional or personal side, what, what's something that you wish you had known back then that you know quite well today? i tell you what, I, I think some of the work that I was doing or jobs that I had, which I, at the time I thought weren't very, you know, interesting and you know what i thought was supposed to be high finance and you know i was i had these visions of of wall street and and things like that um and but i ended up doing work around sort of middle and back office and and some of the you know understanding the piping and and not necessarily all the trading and all that you know that really interesting stuff around 
uh, buying and selling. Um, I think if I'd known that I what I'm doing now and, and really where the, the pain points for a lot of clients are, I think maybe taking a little bit more time in that middle office, back office function just to, just to increase my knowledge base quicker would have been something that I would look to do. And, you know, like, like most people, when you sort of reach this part of your career, you, you kind of look at how all these little things sort of add up and it just gets, it's having that diversification just purely because I, I traveled and I probably took jobs that I had to during, you know, bear markets and things like that. They all sort of accumulate into, into a job now that I really enjoy. So I, I don't know if I'd change anything or look back on anything, but I think, it would be nice to know that the jobs that I was doing at the time weren't just placeholders. They were actually very, very good learning experiences. So that's been good. Well, thank you, Sean. Thanks for your time today. And if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do it? Uh, LinkedIn, probably. Um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So under the Hall Road Investments and and Sean Parkin, is, I, I, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, like you said, if you're looking to get the newsletter, it's a family office newsletter sent every two weeks. It's just really... It's global now. It's um, a lot of people across the world, so it's it's not just Australian family office. It's it's the things that we talked about tonight in terms of trends and things like that. So um, that's always a good way to connect with me is to subscribe to the newsletter and, and you'll receive it every two weeks. But yeah, look out for me on LinkedIn as well, and um, more than happy to to chat with anyone around the family office space in particular and um, infrastructure and technology and all the pain points that we we saw that we we see there and and continue to to try and work and. Uh, fix those challenges for families and family offices. Great. Yeah. It's a, it's a great newsletter and I'd recommend anybody to, to sign up, uh, to sign up for it. So, well, thanks again, Sean. And thanks to all of you for listening in today. If you'd like to get in touch with Sean, or if you have any questions, do send us an email to family office at dentons.com or reach out directly to him through his LinkedIn. If you like, if you enjoyed today's conversation, are so inclined, subscribe to our channel, review us on Apple podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. And as always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated. Probably the best way that you can show your support. To sign up for our newsletters and learn more about our solutions and research in the family office place, please do check out our website. That's dentons.com forward slash family office. That's it. Bye, everyone. Bye.